Matthew chapter 2 um, is where we're going to go uh, this, this evening as we think about what it means to just kind of lean into this, this journey of joy with Jesus. So, you know, several years ago, one of my favorite social experiments was conducted by the Washington Post, which is a, which is a newspaper up in Washington, D.C., and uh, this, this group of folks at the Washington Post, they're wrestling with this question, can sophisticated people recognize extraordinary moments of beauty in the middle of ordinary situations. In fact, what we just kind of saw, like, you know, can sophisticated people recognize extraordinary moments of beauty in the ordinary moments of life? In other words, they wanted to know, could some of the leaders of our country, some of the leading thinkers and politicians and educators, could, could people like that recognize something amazing if they saw it in a setting that they weren't expecting? And so uh, the, the people behind this question at the Post, they called up this guy named Joshua Bell. At the time, he was 39 years old. Uh, he's arguably one of the greatest classical musicians uh, of our time, of our generation. He's a violinist, and they call up Joshua Bell, this guy who sells out uh, performance halls all over the world, and they said, hey, we have this idea. We want you to show up in, in the subway system of D.C. in the metro there at rush hour on a Monday morning, and we want you, one of the greatest musicians, playing one of the most expensive instruments in the world to show up and play some of the most beautiful pieces of music. And we want to see if some people even recognize the beauty in that, in that kind of unsuspecting moment. So he shows up on a Monday morning. Uh, he, he shows up dressed in street clothes. He, he opens up his case. He pulls out his $3.5 million violin. That's a true story. It was made in 1710. And for the next 43 minutes, he played seven of the most complicated and yet beautifully composed pieces of classical music ever arranged. They set up cameras all over the metro stop to see how many people would notice. Over the course of 43 minutes, 1,200 people walked by him and less than 10 stopped to enjoy the music for more than a single minute. I want you to just let that sink in. You know, this one of the greatest musicians ever playing one of the most expensive instruments ever created, playing some of the most beautiful music ever written and nobody even stopped to enjoy the beauty of the songs that were being played. And the people that were putting on this little social experiment, they were just like blown away. They're like, how in the world can human beings miss it? Like, how in the world can such sophisticated people miss these moments of extraordinary beauty in the middle of these ordinary things? But this is what they kind of concluded, is that it's not just possible for us to miss the extraordinary moments of beauty, but it is almost probable that we'll miss it because there is something about the ordinary that so often blinds us to the extraordinary. There's something about the routine, the day-to-day, -day, the, the ins and outs, the grind, whatever it is that you wanna call it. There is something about that that so often robs us from seeing the things that God is doing all around us. And I've been thinking about this over the last several weeks in the context of the Christmas season because the story of Jesus entering in the world is undeniably one of the most extravagantly beautiful things to ever happen. God, in his fullness, enters into the picture. God begins to, to sing this new song across human history in ways that people had never experienced. Expected. And yet almost nobody could hear the song that God was writing. It's amazing to me that in the Christmas story, Jesus arrives. I mean, people had been waiting for him for thousands of years. They've been waiting for a Messiah, waiting for a king, and yet Jesus shows up. And there's no fanfare. There's not thousands of people waiting. There's no one in line to see him. In fact, only a handful of people even stop to notice the music that God is playing. A couple of shepherds show up, they're woefully underdressed and empty-handed. A few people here and there notice, but man, there's no mass 
group of people showing up saying, hey, where is the one that we've been waiting for? And this is the thing that's been kind of sticking with me as we've been reading the Christmas story over the last couple of weeks. I go, man, if it was possible for the people during the days of Jesus to miss the extraordinary thing that God was doing right in front of them, is it possible for you and I to miss the extraordinary things of beauty that God is doing amongst us today? And is it possible for us to be in the midst of a song that God is writing and never even hear the notes? You know, one of the things that I love about Matthew chapter two is Matthew's gonna tell this story of a group of kind of unlikely people. They're kind of in the midst of everybody ignoring what God was doing in the world. There's this group of unlikely people that, uh, that were sophisticated, educated. They were leaders in their own right. They were dignitaries. And yet somehow they had the ability to hear the song that God was writing across creation. They began to recognize what was, was happening. And I, I just kept thinking, man, what would happen if we began to look at their life just from kind of a few different angles this evening and said, God, would you use their story to tune our stories into your story? Would you help us see what it is that you're doing? So we're gonna start in Matthew chapter two tonight. We're gonna look at the story of the wise men. You know, if you grew up in church, maybe you've read this before. If you've ever been to a Christmas play or pageant, maybe you've seen them before. But I want us to see this story as it really unfolds. We can start in verse one together. It starts like this. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east, or wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one that has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with them. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And the religious people said, in Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written in the scriptures. But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least of the rulers amongst Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And so he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, go and search carefully for this child and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child Jesus was. And when they saw the star, they were overcome with joy. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and they worshiped Jesus and they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold and of frankincense and of myrrh. This is the word of God out of Matthew chapter two. Now I want us to kind of understand the story as it unfolds. Even if it feels familiar to you, it's important that you see the context. Matthew starts and he gives us two settings. He says something is happening in this small little suburb of Bethlehem and something is happening in the metropolis, the city of Jerusalem. If you don't know the geography, Bethlehem was to Jerusalem what Leaper's Fork is to Nashville. It was this kind of small, out of the way suburb that was living in the shadows of a bigger city. And I love this because Matthew begins to describe, he says something significant has happened out in the suburbs and no one in the city is aware of it. That this king has been born. That God has entered into the picture and he's, he's here in the out of the way place. And he starts by giving us the setting. There is the, the rural and, and the, the urban. There is the suburban in the city. But he keeps telling the story. He says there are these two settings and he says, and there are these groups of people. He says there's this king named Herod. And I don't know how much you know about King Herod, but I'll just kind of give you the cliff notes of his life. Herod was a brilliant politician. He, he helped the economy just excel during the days of Jesus, 
or before the days of Jesus. He, he helped the, the architecture and the structure of the city grow, but he was absolutely crazy when it came to his personal relationships. He was terrified of losing power. He had 10 wives. He killed his favorite wife because she was a threat to his power. He killed his three oldest sons because they were a threat to his power. He killed his mother-in-law probably just because she was his mother-in-law and he's a guy and he didn't want to go to her house on the holidays. I don't know what the deal was, but he, he had this like tension in him. He didn't know what to do with the people around him. He was a brilliant politician, but his personal life was a mess. And here's the story that's unfolding. There's the suburbs. There's this little story unfolding in the country. There's this maniacal leader in the city and it says this group of magi, these wise men, these, these leaders, from about 14 to 1,600 miles away. We don't know if they're from Babylon or Persia, modern-day Iraq or modern-day Iran. They make the trip all the way to Jerusalem. And I don't know if you've seen a Christmas play before, but no, normally the play goes like this. There's a barn, there's a stable, there's a star perfectly positioned over the stable. Mary looks fantastic, even though she just gave birth. She has the blue sash, the white robe. Joseph is there. The animals are well-behaved. The shepherds are there. They look amazing. And then who else is there at the birth? The wise men, right? But this is not the story that unfolds in Matthew chapter two. In Matthew chapter two, it's sometime after the birth. In fact, in verse 11, it says they're already at the house. They're no longer in the stable. We don't know if Jesus is a day old, a week old, a month old, or a year old. He's still a young kid, but they're no longer in the stable. They're in the house. And this entourage shows up in Jerusalem. Probably not three wise men. It could have been dozens. Could have been 50, could have been 100. We don't know, but they show up. Just imagine in our context, they're in their Escalades, they're in their Bentleys, the windows are blacked out. They roll into the capital city and they show up to talk with this maniacal king. Can you imagine this happening in our context today? A group of leaders from the Middle East, they show up in D.C. to talk to President Trump and they say, hey, listen, we heard that your replacement has just been born. Can you tell us where he is so we can go worship him? How would that Twitter storm look later? You know, it's like, <laughs> can you just imagine the scene that unfolds here? But this is the story And it's filled with drama and it's filled with intrigue and it's filled with uh, leaders from another country showing up. It's filled uh, with this thing happening in the shadows of the suburbs and this, this political turmoil in the middle of the city. And there's all of these things that we could explore, but this is the thing that was sticking with me all week as I kept reading the passage. I went, how come these were the guys that were able to hear the song that God was writing? Like nobody else seemed to notice that Jesus had been born. Nobody else seemed to know, notice that God was doing something in the world, but there are these foreign dignitaries, these foreign leaders that begin to recognize that God is doing something and they show up looking for him. And I go, why were they able to hear the music? That's what I want us to dig into for just a few minutes uh, tonight. And I love the way that God is gonna use these unlikely people Thing to just give us a picture of what it looks like to pursue exceeding joy. If you take notes, I just want you to notice kind of three movements as we look at their story tonight is that these unlikely leaders, they were able to see what God was doing in the world, number one. They were able to see what God was doing in the world. Number two, they were willing to walk towards what God was doing in the world. They were willing to walk towards what God was doing in the world. And number three, they were willing to release what God had put in their hands for the sake of what he was doing in the world. They were able to see, they were willing to walk, and they were eager to release. And so let's start with this idea that they were able to see. I just was stunned by this going, like, why in the world could they see? Look back at verse two with me. This is so, so powerful. It says, they came to Herod and they said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star. We saw his star when it rose and we have come 
to worship him. I found myself just going, how in the world did these guys even know to go looking for the star? Have you ever asked that before? I never even thought about that question until this week. I'm like, how did these guys, they didn't grow up in a, a Christian home. They, they, they didn't grow up near the center of worship in Jerusalem. They didn't grow up on the right side of the spiritual train tracks. And yet for some reason, they're the only ones that seem to recognize what God is doing in the world. I go, how is it that they were able to see? And I think there's kind of two aspects to this reality. You know, God, uh, God is doing something and they are responding to what God is doing. Have you ever noticed that no matter how much you think you've come to Jesus on your own, none of us comes to Jesus by ourselves? That God has this way of working across our lives and across our families and across our friend groups and across our stories that God will, will work across the pages of human history so that we can come to know him. I don't know if you've thought about that recently. If you've ever gone, like, how did I come to faith? Like, what are all of the pieces that have been in play? But this is what I love is you begin to ask this question about the Magi. Like, why were they able to see? You begin to recognize the extraordinary work of God across human history. You know, 600 years before Jesus was born, there was a guy named Daniel. Do you remember the story of Daniel? Daniel grew up in a, a good, like, God-loving home. He grew up worshiping God, knowing God. And when he was a teenage boy, his country was, was captured, they were overtaken, and he became a slave in Babylon. You can read about this in the Old Testament book of Daniel. As a teenager, he's, he's taken into captivity, and he, he's, he's taken into this place of slavery, but the favor of God is upon Daniel. Daniel, he wasn't a preacher or a pastor, he worked in the government as a slave. That's kind of the way his story unfolded. But I love Daniel chapter two, verse 47 and verse 48. We're told that because of the favor of God, Daniel was put in charge of all the magi of Babylon. He's put in charge of all the magi of Babylon. A, a few years later, Babylon would be overtaken by, by Persia. And he'd be put in charge of all of their wise men as well. He'd be put in charge of all their leaders. And there's this moment, 600 years later, Jesus is born. And a group of magi from Babylon and Persia come looking for Jesus. And I go, why did these guys know to look for Jesus? Because for the last 600 years, their people had been walking in the faithfulness that was set before them by the work of Daniel six centuries before. Daniel, this, this man of God, in the midst of his brokenness and his pain, was put in this place of favor and position. And he begins to disciple these guys and to pray for these guys and to lead these guys. He begins to teach them the Hebrew scriptures. And so the reason they even knew to be looking for a star was because they knew what Numbers 24, verse 17 had said. In Numbers 24, verse 17, God had said, listen, a leader, a king is coming one day and his star will rise up over Judea. And the reason they knew to look for the stars because they knew the scriptures. The reason they knew the scriptures is because God had put Daniel there. Have you ever thought about this, that some of the most amazing things God will do through your life will come decades or centuries after you've been buried in the ground? that the faithfulness of God is not contained to the smallness of your lifetime. And that Daniel gets all the press for what he did in the lion's den. But his impact is seen generation after generation after generation. I love this moment because you begin to see the reason these guys were able to see the song that God was writing across human history was because God was raising up messengers like, like Daniel years before these guys were born. God was giving them messages through the scriptures and God was speaking to them in ways that they could recognize. 
Magi, as a part of their job description, as a part of who they were, they studied the stars. They were astrologists and astronomers. And God says, listen, I'm gonna raise up a messenger to disciple your people. I'm gonna speak to you through the scriptures and I'm gonna speak to you through the stars because he knew, he knew that it mattered to them. I go, isn't this just like God? That God always meets us where we are. He comes to us in the things that we understand. He comes to us in the things that we see, in the things that we feel, in the things that we understand. And he says, I want you to see how much I love you. See, it's here in Matthew chapter two, you begin to realize that these magi were in the crosshairs of God's love and that God's story was being written across the pages of human history long before, uh, before they were ever born. Do you realize just how far God is willing to go so that you can know him? It's this amazing picture. It's an amazing picture. Why were they able to see? They were able to see because God was opening their eyes in all of the ways that they would understand, but they were also able to see because their hearts were responsive. Their hearts were responsive to what God was doing through those messengers and through those messages and through those methods. Here's what I promise you is, is if these guys weren't looking for what God was doing, they would have missed it because the truth about human history is that God is always doing great things in the world around us, and a lot of times we miss it. So why were they able to see? Well, because God was giving them something to see, but they were also able to see because they were looking for it. And I love this, this story. They were able to see, number one. But number two, I want you to see this. They were willing to walk towards what it is that they had seen in God. They were willing to walk. You know, so we don't know if they were from Babylon or from Persia. You know, Babylon is where modern-day Iraq is. Persia is where modern-day Iran is. And so if they were from Babylon, it would have been a 1,400-mile journey to Jerusalem. If they were from uh, Persia, it would have been 1,700 to 2,000 miles. Just imagine this journey. There were no cars. There were no airplanes. Like, you know, I mean, just very primitive ways of travel. Can you imagine walking from Nashville to Las Vegas? That's how far of a journey it would have been for them. I mean, some of you would need to walk that far after what you plan to do there, right? But, you know, just think about how far of a journey that is. If they would have been riding in the most up-to-date 2017 camel, whatever it is that they would have had, it would have taken them about 40 days to make that journey from where they were to Jerusalem. You know, I don't know why God works this way. I don't know why God didn't just come to them in Babylon, come to them in Persia and say, hey, listen, good news. Jesus has been born. He's everything I told you he would be. He's amazing. Stay put. Just trust me. You'll be okay. It's not the way God works. God comes to him and he says, hey, look, everything you've been looking for is coming to bear. But if you want to encounter it, you have to move towards it. And this is the way things work in the kingdom of God. God meets us where we are. But if we want to grow, we have to be willing to move. We have to be willing to walk towards them. You know, these guys, they leave jobs behind and responsibilities behind and families behind and routines behind. I don't know what they had to leave, but at minimum, they were gone for two to three months in search of what God was doing. Can you imagine showing up to, to your spouse, to your friends, to your roommates, to your coworkers, to your boss, whoever it is, and saying, hey, here's the deal. I saw this sign. God's doing something in the world. I'll see you in March. This is the journey they went on. And here's the truth about following Jesus. The journey to the deeper things of God is rarely a convenient one. It is rarely a short one. It rarely comes without a price. And I think sometimes in a culture like ours where we are so obsessed with convenience and with comfort and with routine and with the status quo, we end up shortchanging ourselves the deeper things of God because we're so interested in keeping things as they are. 
If you want to go to new places, you have to be willing to leave where you are. And I love this journey. It's not just that they were able to see, it's that they were willing to walk. I remember when I was in college, I had a friend, he was from Sudan. He and I had very different stories. Growing up, he had a very hard life. He had to flee as a refugee several times, some, some really kind of difficult things in his story. But he showed up and he was just so grateful to be here in the States getting uh, a college education. I remember this one semester in particular, he didn't have enough money to live on campus, and so his apartment was over off of Old Hickory Boulevard. Our campus was in Green Hills. And on the days when he couldn't afford to get a bus ticket, or when he couldn't afford, or he couldn't get a hold of anybody to give him a ride, he would walk uh, to school. He'd walk all the way to campus. It took him about three to three and a half hours just one way to get there. I remember I lived on campus, and I would often be late for class. He would never be late for class. This one day in particular, I remember showing up late to class. I didn't have my books. I I wasn't prepared. He's there on the front row. He had just walked three and a half hours to get to class, and I show up, and I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Dave, you can never appreciate something that you don't have to walk for. He said, you can never appreciate that which you don't walk for. And I began to recognize the deeper work that God was doing in the heart of my friend was the result of his willingness to walk towards what God was doing. And sometimes it feels like a punishment when God awakens us and says, hey, stand up, there's something more for you. Sometimes it feels like God is coming after you, but God is really saying, no, there's a gift in the journey. They were able to see, they were willing to walk, and they were eager to release. Look down at verse 11, I love verse 11. It says, when they came to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him, and then they opened their treasure and they presented him with gifts of gold and with frankincense and with myrrh. I love this scene, these dignitaries, these leaders from the east, they show up, they, they come into Jesus' house, and they don't come in with a sense of position or with power or with pride. They come in and they begin to immediately release everything. They get down on their knees humbly. They bow before Jesus. They release this sense of being in charge, of being in control, of being important. They release that before the Lord. And it says, what does it say in verse 11? And they opened up their treasures to him. They knew that what they had seen and what they had walked for was willing, was worth sacrificing for. And they begin to give to what it is that Jesus is doing. I, I love this. They give these unusual gifts. It says they give gifts of gold and of frankincense and of myrrh. I don't know if you know the significance behind these, these gifts, but they're, they're beautiful gifts. Gold is a gift that you'd only give to a king. Frankincense was a, a scent that they would only burn in the temple. It was, the significant, it was to signify that you were in the presence of the divine. And myrrh is what you would use to put on a body that had just died to, to kind of embalm the body. Can you imagine showing up at a baby shower in Nashville, Tennessee, and you have a, a, a king's crown, and you have an, art, or an artifact of worship, and then you have a baby casket? I mean, that would not go over well if you showed up at a baby shower in Nashville. But it was their way of showing up and saying, hey, here's the deal. We know that this baby, this child, he is the king, and he's not just a king, but he is divine, and he's not just divine, he is the king divine who has come to die for the sins of the world and to be raised for all the people. And they came and said, hey, we know exactly what's going on here. We can see it, and we can walk to it, and we're willing to release all that we are so that we can lean into this moment. And Matthew says in verse 10, and as they did this, they were over." Come with exceeding joy. See, the the journey to joy in the human story is not about how much we accumulate. It's not about how easy our life is. The journey to exceeding joy in our story is found in a fresh encounter with the living God. 
And I love this moment in Matthew chapter two where the least likely people, the ones that you would never expect to recognize the song that God was writing in their midst. They hear the song, they see it, they drop everything they have and they go for it. I don't know who you relate to in this story, but there's all these characters. You have Herod, this guy that recognizes what God is doing in the world, but he's threatened by it, and so he decides to shut it down. And there may be some of you that are here in this space tonight, and you come and, and you recognize what God is trying to do in your life, but you feel threatened by what it is that God is trying to do, and you're trying to shut down. For some of you, maybe like the religious leaders, I don't know if you noticed this back in verse four and five, but they knew exactly where all of this was taking place. Herod comes to them and he says, where is this king to be born? And they say, over there in Bethlehem. But did you notice they didn't even bother going to check it out for themselves? Did you know it's possible for you to point people to something that you yourself aren't experiencing? You know, I learned this a few months ago. A friend of mine, they just had a kid and they asked Sydney and I some advice about parenting, which makes no sense because we don't know what we're doing. We're just ruining our kids one day at a time, just like everybody else is. But they asked us some advice and I gave them some advice and honestly, I forgot what I told them until they showed up and they said, hey, a few months ago, you said this thing and we've done it every day and it stuck with us and it's blessed us. And as soon as they told me what I had said, I thought, man, that's pretty good advice. I wish I would have tried that. Because <laughs> we've all done that before, right? Like we, we've pointed people to things that we ourselves aren't living into. Like, did you know it's possible to do that in the season of Christmas? to point others to Jesus, to sing about Jesus, to think about Jesus, but to never get to the place where you're on your knees before Jesus. And you can stir up this sentiment in a season like this and never actually know him as your redeeming Savior and Lord. You can be like Herod, you can be like the religious leaders, or you can be like the Magi that say, hey, listen, we don't know the way this all works out, but we recognize what God is doing in the world. We are willing to walk towards what God is doing in the world and we will release whatever we need to release so we can be a part of what God is doing in the world. And here's what I'm convinced of, that right now, you and I are living in a moment in human history where God is doing extraordinary things in the world. The question is, do you have the ability to hear the song that God is writing? Things are happening all around us. And I could give you some rabbit holes to chase, but it'd be more fun if you'd search it out on your own. I'm telling you, things are happening right now in the world that the scriptures have pointed to. The question is, do you have the eyes to see it? And do you have the willingness to go for it? See, I believe God has great things in store for those that are able to see and willing to walk and eager to release. And I believe he has a blessing for you. And so here's what I wanna invite you to do tonight. I don't know where your story is, if you're a Christian or not. I don't know what part of the story that you're resonating with, but here's the deal. I'm gonna invite you to get in groups before we go take communion to get with the people next to you. And to just spend a few moments reflecting on kind of what it is that God's speaking to you right now. And, and with the person next to you to just kind of share, hey, I need some help from God. I need some help to see more clearly. Or I need some help to walk towards what he's doing. Or I need some help to let go of some things. For some of you, you need help to see. For some of you, you need help to move. For some of you... You need help to let go. I don't know what that is. Uh, you know, this morning I was here with my wife and we sat down. She said, which one do you need? I said, I need help in all three. I'm just that jacked up. And some of you are as spiritually messed up and confused as I am and you need help in all those areas and you fit in here. That's okay. But here's what I'm, I'm gonna give you the space to do right now is I'm gonna pray for us and then before we go take communion, I'm gonna give you just like 10 or 12 minutes to pray with the people that are next to you. To just kind of share, hey, here's what's going on. Here's where I need the help of God and then to just pray for one another. And then after we've done that, we're gonna have the time of worship and communion uh, together. So let me pray over us, and then we'll enter in to the time of prayer and discussion. God, I love you, and I just thank you so much.
for these men and these women. God, I thank you for what you're doing in our midst tonight. God, I thank you for just the opportunity to hear and to see and to recognize all that you're up to in the world. It's in the name of Jesus I pray and give thanks. And God, we say, amen.